even if it's rape, I mean, how long can it take? But then if, if you're legally, you know, culpable or found culpable, then the ramifications, you know, can really just <laughs> take your life away. Simply, yeah. If, if not death, that is, if maybe a mob doesn't, you know, descend on you and kill you. My name is Sophia Rajablatapan, an advocate of the High Court of Kenya and the creator and host of the Dear Law podcast. Dear Law is a project focused on using storytelling, feminist and survivor-centered approaches to bring to the fore the sexual harassment experiences of women in the legal profession and the prevalence of sexual harassment in the workplace. While the Dear Law podcast is focused on the legal profession, we recognize that the experiences and stories involving the harassment of women cut across all professions and social spheres. You should be aware that because this podcast is about sexual harassment, we will be talking about a difficult subject matter that might be disturbing for some listeners. This episode also contains and explores other mature themes. Therefore, listener discretion is advised. Yes, I have experienced yeah. sexual harassment at the workplace in a law firm I used to work in. Right. Yes. And who was the perpetrator? My immediate boss was related to the owner of the farm, so it was like a family thing. Right. Yeah. Right. That is a real testimony of a young Kenyan lawyer whose identity we will not be revealing today. So now he'd come to the office where I was seated, and then he'd come, like, start touching your shoulders and your neck, and he wants to stand very close to you, and it was very uncomfortable. You don't know whether you're supposed to, how you're supposed to react because you don't want to overreact, because you don't want to lose your job. But then again, you want to set boundaries. In our professional life, we spend more time with colleagues than we do with our own family members and close friends. And with the traditional gender imbalance and power disparity in a patriarchal society, how do we create a culture in which women are treated as equals and there's respect between colleagues? And how do we truly understand the impact that sexual harassment has on victims? This is one item that uh, speaks to demotivating the staff. And demotivation here comes in a lot of aspects. There's the level of what we call the human dignity. Uh, a person is entitled to that, you know, under Article 41 of the Constitution. And uh, this speaks to, one, the violation of that human dignity as a person. And what that does, it has what we call a psychosocial effect on the person. And your performance definitely will drop down and or you will have no choice but to lose or, uh, you know, just let go of uh, the job that you're doing. So basically the performance is one, affected. Two, there is psychosocial issues. And three, um, we've seen even uh, five instances of people even committing suicide to that effect. So it's a vice that I really, really um, stand against as a feminist. This is David Chalo, a human resource practitioner with over 15 years' experience in setting up human resource policies and administration in organizations ranging from startups to SMEs to NGOs and parastatals. And what does the law require of an employer in terms of dealing and addressing sexual harassment in the workplace? And, and specifically, what are the bare minimums that any employer, whether you're a law firm, a company, 
that has employees, one, two, 12, 20, what does the law actually require? What are the bare minimums? Okay. Uh, nice question, Sophia. And uh, this is to basically put into context the legal framework of sexual harassment. And basically, one, we have the constitution, and which speaks to you, know, you as a person and your rights, uh, basic human rights. We have even the international law, which also speaks to that. Bringing it to context again, we have the Employment Act 2007 and the Sexual Offences Act. So this is the legal framework within which we are talking. And the requirements by law is that any organization that uh, you know has 20 and above employees, that is Employment Act 2007, Section 6 is clear, you should have a sexual harassment policy in place. But again, for those employers or organizations that have 20 and less people, again, you should be able to enjoy the protection under the, the Constitution of Kenya. One, two, you should be able also be protected by the Sexual Offenses Act. So in my view, whether you have 20 or less, you still must have these legal documents or policies in place to protect the employees and yourself. This all seems to work in theory. But remember the young lawyer whose testimony you just heard? Well, this is how it ended. Yeah, so it was very hard. And then the texting, you know, words like, I don't know, I love you, which you know is very, such messages, you know, I can't live without you. I'm, I'm wondering what's the proper response because I don't want to be, look like I'm, being aggressive because yeah. again I'm, I'm doing my pupillage I need my pupillage so I don't know how to not be aggressive so I'm like no don't send me the messages and then he won't stop so I stopped responding I'll just like blue tick the messages without responding and then one day he, he told me that 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 is actually a sign that I actually love him back and this person is married yeah so how did you get him to stop did he ever stop Touching you inappropriately and sending you messages? Does he still send you messages? Um, so how did he stop? He mm. didn't stop until I left. So I had to resign. It was one of the reasons why I resigned. Mm. Because now when I wasn't, I don't know, cooperating, so he'd start like the emotional abuse. Like I remember one time he told me that I wasn't as good as I thought I was. Yeah. You. <laughs> So he was like, you're smart, but you're not as smart as you think you are. Yeah. So he started like, I don't know, behaving, making my work environment very, very difficult. Right. You know, even when, when it comes to issuing work, um, and then he's my boss, so I actually need approval for some of those things. And then he's bad-mouthing me before my other boss. So yeah, it became very difficult. I had to resign. Would any action have been taken if she had lodged a complaint since her immediate boss was related to the owner of the company? So I'm trying to think about it from a very practical perspective as well. Yes. Again, I am very cognizant of the nature of law firms that we have in Kenya. Yes. Most of them are small and medium-sized yes. law firms. Yes. Yes. And so for me, how practical is it for a pupil to send an email to mm -hmm. the owner of the law firm who has sexually harassed her mm -hmm. and expects to still have a job the next day. It, it all goes to how informed you are of your rights 
Secondly, how informed again you are of the process of reporting these cases. Because there are a lot of these small uh, legal firms and uh, they have one partner who is maybe the lead and does almost everything. These people have a reputation to keep, right? And besides the reputation, there is also what we normally call the ethical standards that they have to uphold and also for them to keep in line in check with the reporting authorities like the LSK, if it's for legal firms, like uh, Kenya Association of Manufacturers, if it's for the manufacturing industry, like, you know, like the list goes on. So there is an authority that is higher than that boss that you're talking about. Right. So if you put that documentation in a manner likely to suggest that uh, it's either he changes or drops that uh, type of harassment or it's okay if he chooses to fire you, then there are other uh, legal means and ways that you, you can expose him and or not even expose him, but seek legal redress. And that would have uh, what we call reputational risk on the farm and or on the organization. What does a complaint that rises to the level of being actionable look like? I pose that question to Chalo. One, we must have a good complaint launch where you have the protection that is provided by the employer, one of confidentiality of the matter being treated in the confidentiality it deserves. You must be protected from retaliation and discrimination. That is after you've launched a complaint. And two, it must have a procedure that one, there is a complainant, and two, there is a person at this juncture, just a suspect or respondent. So once we have those two, then the person launching the claim must be very sure of the happenings and must put everything in context. And what I normally advocate is make sure that it's in writing so that the person who is dealing with the case can be able to pull reference and be able to you know, follow up with the case. And even if they leave, there's a sort of a continuity and a person can be able to pick up, construct it, and move on. So once you launch the case uh, in a written format, it could be even in a discussion and recorded. So all these are just mediums of doing what? Capturing the complaint that you're putting across. We must have witnesses. If at all there is no witness, then uh, the evidence that you're putting forward must be well informed in terms of the dates, where the incident happened, etc., etc. So this is the evidence building part where you must be very careful in what you're writing because, again, what you're writing there is what will be taken to context by the team that is going to be going through the case. The fourth item is basically making sure that the persons who will be called to actually sit in and listen to the case are people that, are one, the claimant and the respondent are comfortable with. And two, you can't have, again, the respondent being in that panel. So those are just constituents of what should constitute a panel. So if it's not a panel, it's one person who is seated in a place of authority to make an informed decision and or a direction that will fit both the claimant and respondent at this point. The fifth one is up until a ruling at that level, it's important that within that time, the claimant is protected with prohibition of retaliation and discrimination, as I initially said. So within that period, that case is being handled. These are very instrumental items to be applied so that we protect the interest of both the respondent 
and the claimant. So the final process in this is if the persons or person who is listening to this case has found sufficient evidence linking the respondent to this sexual harassment case, then they may have to give a report to that effect in written form and what they have indeed found as compelling evidence towards the case at point. This is now going to take another direction where they will you know, follow the civil case procedure and or criminal case procedure and or maybe now if the company has a sexual harassment policy, now go into the depths of looking at the disciplinary process of no, the organization. So basically that is in a nutshell what happens or what should happen in a very basic sexual harassment policy uh, and in terms of its procedures and mechanisms. Now having said all these things, we must understand that we are dealing with adults here. We cannot ignore that there will be consensual relations, even sexual ones between colleagues and sometimes even with clients. I know. You know what they do in the States, which I think is actually a fantastic idea? Mm-hmm. If people are involved, yes. if you have two people in an office who are involved, you have to sign a waiver. One of our guests from episode four raises an important point. How do we distinguish sexual harassment from consensual sexual relationships in the workplace? If you have two people in an office who are involved, you have to sign a waiver. You're dating, you're shagging, whatever it is. As long as you guys are involved, you have to sign a waiver. Mm-hmm. Such that if there's no waiver that has been signed, yeah. you, you you can't come and tell me that uh-uh, it was consensual or we were just, no. I mean... And you know, no, you see, the, yeah, you see, yeah, yeah. no, the truth is, yes. the reason why this thing is going unnoticed or unheard of is because people do not want to come forward. Yes. And how, I, I like the idea yes. of signing yes. um, a document with HR, yes. right, yes. to disclose, yes. to disclose the relationship, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Um, how many people would actually do that? Because you have to understand that people have wives. Yeah, people have people have children. Like, like, like <laughs> and then, like, we have a written record of yeah, me and this babe are actually having a sexual like in, relationship you see, that we shouldn't it's, it's be two having. Way. HR can't reveal that info. You see, it's no, but it's, it's on record. It's, That's the point. Even if it's on record, I'm just saying HR can't reveal because you see, what are you trying to cover? And how many how many law firms even have HR? Think about that. Yes, true, granted. But what are you trying to cover here? Mm. We are trying to curb sexual harassment. Yes. yes. Chalo, our human resources expert, personally recommends a non-dating policy within the organization. I usually advocate for uh, a strictly no dating, if I can just put it like like that, no dating policy within the workspace. Uh, But if you do get into a relationship, here's a formal way of protecting yourself, male or female, from when things stop being so rosy. If the dating was meant to happen, I normally introduce a policy where the two staff have to sign a change of status form where they too uh, agree that indeed they are moving this relationship from A to B and that management is brought to the attention of that. But then it must have boundaries. Again, it's uh, it's at the discretion of the management to look at it and assess and see, okay, these two are dating and uh, if they break up or if anything goes wrong, what would be the ramifications to the organization? So basically, it's a kind of worms that I don't normally like opening. And I usually have that no dating policy because it's proven to work in many organizations over the years. 
we alluded to this a little bit earlier mm-hmm. um but we acknowledge that human resource more often than not holds a lot of confidential information on employees that is kept secret and protected under the law under what conditions would you reveal information pertinent to a sexual harassment claim to the involved parties okay so where do you break the seal mm-hmm. as hr mm-hmm. i believe the information ought to be considered confidential until there is one uh, sufficient evidence to link the person to this case of harassment and two where again a court of law has already had the case and been able to give a judgment to that effect so that is when we can always share the information and be able to present it to the public for consumption uh, secondly uh, i'm also obligated by law and by my you know profession to one give sound reference checks either former and or current employees to any other willing employer within the the employment space why because we need to be deliberate in the way we put in preventive measures as opposed to reactive measures so if a certain organization wants to recruit mr a who has a case that has been proven that indeed was a sexual harassment case then if another employer is trying to call me and to look for reference checks then i'm obligated by law to Uh, give the exact information so that we break that cycle of what this person going to another organization repeating the same thing so those are the three um, areas under the law and under my profession that i am obligated to release this information so the practical emphasis is on preventative rather than reactive measures now i work in an organization where there are so many men we are quite a few ladies and apparently I'm the youngest one there now today morning what happened is one colleague who sits next to me yelled to another colleague who sits the other side ebu nikulize um how long is sex supposed to take uh-uh. you understand how is it how long is it supposed to take now this morning this 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 morning yeah this morning so i felt I felt violated. Right. You're yelling it out to another person. I'm the only female at that time in the office. Right. And I'm wondering, okay, shouldn't bear as you said <laughs> what parameters? <laughs> so is that sexual harassment? That's what the thing. I don't right. know, but I felt very offended. Right. Extremely offended. It is said that the organizational tolerance is the single most important influence on whether sexual harassment occurs in the workplace. In September 2018, member states of the United Nations established what is called a group of friends to eliminate sexual harassment. And Kenya was among those states, among the group of friends. Within Kenya, strict HR policies and mechanisms to curb sexual harassment form part and parcel of that group of friends. The group of friends that gives victims the confidence to come forward. We salute you and we recognize your courage. In the next and final episode, a powerful call to action as we conclude by diving into the Law Society of Kenya anti-sexual harassment policy. How do we give life to this policy and ensure that it is implemented? How do we restore 
honor to the legal profession. Like and follow us at dearlaw underscore ke across all social media platforms. This podcast was produced by me, Sophia Rajivla Tapen, and Lee Kanyotu.